The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I'm going to request your indulgence today. You may not see my eyes too much, but as you hear my words, I pray that they will sink deeply, giving clarity and giving hope. I've been asked to speak on the topic of transgender. When I said at the beginning of the semester, I think I'll take this one on, I had no idea the present relevance that such a topic would have. Indeed, I didn't even feel the weightiness of this topic. But now I do. There is a rising storm. We're feeling it. And we need clarity from our God. The American Psychological Association defines sex this way. It's a person's biological status that is typically categorized as male, female, or intersex and that is identified by sex chromosomes, gonads, internal reproductive organs, and external genitalia. In contrast, the APA states that gender refers to the attitudes, feelings, and behaviors that a given culture associates with a person's biological sex. While one's biological sex is fixed by nature, This definition treats gender as a culturally bound category so that what is gender normative in one culture may legitimately stand against what is or was gender normative in another culture or age. With this, the APA further stresses the need to distinguish persons' biological sex from their gender identity which may be male, female, or transgender, and then we must account for person's gender expression through things like clothing, communication patterns, and interests, which may or may not reflect one's gender identity or biological sex. Now, as I said, before readying this message, I had honestly no grasp of how serious the transgender issue is in our day. Yet now I see that it is massive and I do not believe that the church can ignore it. In 2013, California became the first state in the union to require that public schools, to require this, that public schools allow transgender students to use the bathrooms and play on sports teams that correspond with their personal gender identities. Since that time, in the fall of 2013, there has been a growing wave of debate across the country. And just this week, numerous states went to the polls in the USA to decide whether bath and locker room access would be governed by biological sex or by gender identity. A recent case in the Chicago area may actually make it to the federal courts. Now, I remember as a youth standing in awe of Bruce Jenner's athletic ability as I watched replays of his decathlon gold medal at the Montreal 1976 Summer Olympic Games. Now he, or is it she, and a subset of social media are calling upon me and my children to call him Kate and to even follow Glamour magazine in celebrating him as Woman of the Year. 
Beginning this fall in Ontario, Canada, the sex education curriculum began introducing eighth graders to six different genders and four options for sexual orientation. As to gender, you can be male, female, two-spirited, transgender, transsexual, or intersex. Sexual orientation can be heterosexual, gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Similarly, since last fall, the Lincoln, Nebraska public school system began training its teachers in how to create a gender-neutral or gender-inclusive environment in their classrooms. They give every teacher at the beginning of the year a handout that includes 12 easy steps to gender inclusivity, among which are don't use phrases like boys and girls. And when you find it necessary to reference gender, say boy, girl, both, or neither. The transgender storm is not simply hitting other countries, not simply hitting other states. It's not simply only reaching our homes via social media. No, no, it is here. It is at, at our back door. And indeed, for many at Bethlehem, it is in the living room. The Minnesota State High School League last year took up the issue regarding transgender sports and overwhelmingly approved to open up girls' sports to transgender student-athletes in its 500 public schools. This fall, already, students born male but who identify themselves as female can now compete as girls against girls in sports with no stated restrictions to women's locker rooms so long as they have approved written statements from their parents, guardians, or healthcare professionals regarding, and I quote, their consistent or sincerely held gender-related identity, end quote. The gay, bisexual, transgender movement quips that only this approach supplies equal status to all students, and they claim any other view is bathroom bullying. Now, I know that some of you in this room have yourselves wrestled with gender identity, or you have been the victim of another's gender identity crisis. I ache for you. I long for you to know the healing and the wholeness that only Jesus can bring. These matters are deeply personal. Often they're very difficult to talk about. But I want you to know that we, we as leaders at Bethlehem, we desire to help you. We desire to hope with you in the life-transforming, grace-saturated, pain-overcoming, mercy-filled love and power of God to heal. One of you has had to bear the burden of a father who has struggled with cross-dressing and female gender identity, and you've seen how it's destroyed your parents' marriage. I ache for you. May the Lord care for your broken heart, for the broken hearts of all those who are involved, and may he give you wisdom as a father of your own children as you move ahead in this crisis. Another of you ladies at the young age of 16 was seduced into a long-standing relationship by a woman claiming to be a man. Now you bear the scars while celebrating 
celebrating the redemptive, healing, cleansing work of Jesus. In Christ, we gain a new identity. In Christ, we gain freedom to live in God's world, God's way, for God's glory. That's what I want for us today. So may the Lord now grant us grace as we open up his word to consider how God would have us as his people assess and confront this transgender storm. We begin this morning in Deuteronomy 22.5, and I invite you to open your Bibles there, Deuteronomy 22.5. As Christians today, hear me, we are not under the old covenant law, Romans 6.14, 1 Corinthians 9.20 and 21, Galatians 5.18. Not being under the Mosaic law means in part that the law itself is no longer the direct and immediate guide or judge of the conduct of God's people. The age of the Mosaic Law Covenant has ceased from having a central and determinative role among God's people, Romans 10, 2 Corinthians 3, Galatians 3. Yet, the law of Moses still serves Christians, both as a prophetic witness to Christ and in the way that it clarifies for believers the character of God and clarifies for us how deep and how wide love for God and neighbor goes. While Christians are not legally bound to the Mosaic law, we do not throw out the law itself. Indeed, Moses himself predicted that in the day when God would circumcise hearts and empower love, that's today, Moses predicted that in that day, God's people would hear Yahweh's voice and keep all the commandments that Moses gave in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 8. But, as Jesus declared in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, while all the commanding parts of the Mosaic law still matter for Christ followers, we only appropriate them through Christ's law fulfillment. Only when we consider the impact of Christ's work that that, that work has on any given law can we begin to consider the lasting significance of that law for Christians. With this, Paul asserts that through our love for others, Christians fulfill the law. And that all the commandments, not just the moral commandments, not just the civil laws, but all the commandments indeed are fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Galatians, uh, Romans 13, 8 through 10. Paul told Timothy that all Scripture, including the Old Testament, is God-breathed, is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. All Scripture, useful in that way. As such, I'm going to preach today from an Old Testament law, considering its lasting relevance to the transgender questions that are in fresh ways confronting our church. So as we go in this way, please pray with me. Precious Lord, I'm asking that you would open up your word to us. Grant that we may have ears to hear. And that as we hear, fear would be generated, and from that fear, holiness would be produced. Unless you awaken, we will remain asleep. Overcome hardness, deafness, not only in this room, but in all the hearing of those who will tap into this recording. For the glory of Jesus, for the preservation of, of the distinctions between Christ and his church, I pray. 
Amen. Now, I follow a three-step process when it comes to trying to determine the lasting significance of Old Testament laws for Christians. Here they are. Number one, I first determine the law's type and original meaning, significance, and purpose, including all implications. So I want to start back in the days of Moses. Number two, I next determine the theological significance of this law, which includes First, clarifying what the law tells us about God and his ways. Second, assessing how Christ, Christ's law fulfillment impacts this law. And third, stating in a single sentence the love principle that stands behind that law. And finally, the third step is to preserve both the portrait of God and the love principle behind the law, but change the context in light of the finished work of Christ. So let's walk through this process now with our Bibles open to Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Now this verse comes in the second movement of Moses' second Deuteronomic sermon. In chapters 5 through 11, Moses simply tells Israel what to do. They're to love God and love neighbor. And then in the second half, chapters 12 through 26, all of the detailed statutes and rules clarify how they're to do it. What they're to do is love. All the other commandments clarify how to do it. Deuteronomy 16.20 summarizes the thrust of this second movement. Righteousness, righteousness you shall pursue. 12, 1 through 16, 17 addresses righteousness in community worship. 16, 18 through 18, 22 talks about righteousness in community oversight. And then 19, 1 through 26, 15 gives instruction on righteousness in daily community life. And that's where we find our verse. The first part of chapter 22 simply overviews various unrelated laws that consider the right way to live. Into this context, we read Deuteronomy 22.5. Look at the text with me. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. God gave Deuteronomy 22.5 for the benefit of Christians. But he did not initially give it to us. There's a distance between the church and this command that was originally given, revealed to Israel under a different covenant and time in redemptive history. As such, as Christians, we must seek first to determine the law's type and original meaning, significance, and purpose in the Mosaic Covenant. So that's what we're about to do. Formally, this law, if you just look at the context, this law is more like the ones in verses 9 through 12 than the laws in verses 1 through 4 or verses 6 through 8. Specifically, it's an apodictic rather than casuistic law. It states a general principle to guide life rather than supplying an if or when then scenario in which the prohibition becomes operative. The principle itself seems less a core truth like you shall never commit adultery and more a secondary application of a core truth. On the surface, the prohibition relates to what the APA terms gender expression. 
The way a person acts to communicate gender within a given culture through things like dress. But at a deeper level, the law assumes a more fundamental rule. Look carefully at the law. A man, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. This deeper sense of the law. What is the fundamental rule that it assumes? That there are only two biological sexes, male and female. And that what is gender normative in God's world is that one's biological sex should govern both one's gender identity and gender expression. Before divine wrath is poured out, this text provides a kind, a kind corrective to gender confusion and transgender identity. Deuteronomy 22.5 stands independent of its context. It simply comes to us as two prohibitions followed by a single motivation clause. In Hebrew, there's two types of negative commands. There's immediate and durative, all or low. And God chose to frame these prohibitions as durative so that we should actually read the not as never. A woman shall never wear a man's garment, nor shall a man ever put on a woman's cloak. So from God's perspective, there is never a permissible time for the type of cross-dressing addressed in this passage. Now, digging deeper into this law, we should note that the term translated man is geber, strong man, and not the more common ish. Now, some have suggested that geber means warrior, but this meaning is more associated with the adjective gibor, mighty one, as in Deuteronomy 10.17 with reference to the Lord himself. Furthermore, within the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, all other instances of Geber simply overlap in meaning with Ish, showing up in contexts that distinguish the men from the young, Exodus 10, 7 and 11, or the men from the women and children, Exodus 12, 37. The clear difference between Geber and Ish is that when paralleled with Women, or a woman, ish can often mean husband, whereas geber never does in any of its 24 Old Testament uses. So what I infer from this is that this law concerning male and female relationships is not restricted to husbands and wives and thus family law, but it rather speaks to the broader society and community. From God's perspective, maleness and femaleness bears implications beyond the home, beyond the gathered worship community. It also impacts daily life in society. In ancient Israel, certain styles of dress distinguished men from women. The term used here for the woman's cloak, simla, is restrictive. It's, it's very narrow, pointing specifically to the outer wrapper or mantle that a woman would have on her body. In contrast, the term rendered garment in the ESV is the Hebrew kali, vessel. So in relation to man, this is a much broader term. It suggests any decoration, adornment, implement, or piece of equipment that was specifically identified with men. This could even include weapons of war, but it's not restricted to that in any way. 
Within Israelite culture then, there were certain styles of dress, ornaments, or items that distinguished men and women. As such, two things appear to be at stake within this law. Number one, everyone in Israelite society needed to let their gender expression align with their biological sex. And two, everyone needed to guard against gender confusion wherein others could wrongly perceive a man to be a woman and a woman to be a man based on clothing. Whether due to pagan religious activity or to a desire to engage in roles restricted to the opposite sex, such practices, says Deuteronomy 22.5, opposed any form of godliness. Note now the motivation clause in Deuteronomy 22.5. God calls the type of cross-dressing, transvestite practice, and role confusion addressed here, he calls it an abomination to the Lord. This statement, we should feel it, it highlights gravitas. This is weighty. There's something substantive about engaging in this kind of activity. Now, within Deuteronomy, sins that are tagged abominable include the crimes of idolatry, witchcraft, and even the offense of dishonest gain, whether at the criminal, civil, or family level. So, I pause and I say, okay, those things are all abominable. What is it about idolatry? What is it about witchcraft? What is it about dishonesty that makes it an abomination to the Lord. Well, idolatry gives glory to someone other than Yahweh. Witchcraft looks to means other than God's word to discern his will or what will happen in the future. And dishonest gain diminishes the value of God's image in others. We must conclude, therefore, that something about transgender expression and gender confusion directly counters the very nature of God. Now, this raises the likelihood in my mind that what makes transgenderism abominable is that it maligns humanity's ability to reflect, resemble, and represent God rightly in the world. In Genesis 1, we're told that God created both males and females equal in their opportunity to relate to God. Males and females were equal in their call to rule over God's world, equal in their responsibility to image God in ever-increasing ways on a global scale, and equal in their dependence on God to fulfill the mission. Nevertheless, Already in Genesis 1, there are two distinct biological sexes. There are males and there are females, and each of them plays different roles in being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth with God's image. From the beginning, the Bible understands that men and women display God in ways that are at times different, but that are always complementary. Now, when we get into Genesis 2, these role distinctions are developed further. God portrays the paradigm kingdom family to be made of a head and a helper. The male head serving as the primary protector and provider and the leader in servant-hearted love and the female helper supporting, following, and complementing his lead. 
This family structure then provides not only the paradigm for marriage, but the very building block for both the covenant community and all of the world's societies. Just as God stands as head over his creation at large and his people in particular, so also the chief creatures, humans as male and female, who alone image God will distinctively reflect, resemble, and represent this right order in their complementary roles and relationships. It's not just Hosea 1 through 3 or Ephesians 5 that highlight the symbolic and doxological nature of gender roles. The Pentateuch itself explicitly identifies the parabolic nature of human marriage and of male and female interpersonal relations when it portrays Israel, God's covenant partner, as whoring after and committing fornication with other gods. Gender identity and gender expression is about God's glory. It's about maintaining the God-created distinctions on earth that in turn point to the ultimate distinction between God and his bride. Just as husbands and wives in the human household and men and women in the collective household of God bear distinctive roles and by this uniquely display God's image, so too the creator The creator and Lord of all things is rightly magnified in the lives of males and females when our gender identity and when our gender expression align perfectly with our God-ordained biological sex. Those born boys are to live and thrive as boys. Those born girls are to live and thrive as girls. When corrupt desires want to alter this course in our own soul, One must choose, with God's help, the path that magnifies the majesty of God best. And that path is defined for us right here in Deuteronomy 22, 5. So let me summarize the purpose of Deuteronomy 22, 5 in its original context. God's law against transgender expression sought to maintain divinely created biological and gender distinctions within the community in order to nurture an environment that properly displays the supremacy of God and the ever-present head-helper distinction between God and the people he is creating for himself. Let me restate that. God's law against transgender expression in Deuteronomy 22.5 sought to maintain divinely created biological and gender distinctions within the community in order to nurture an environment that properly displays the supremacy of God and the ever-present head-helper distinction between God and the people he is creating for himself. I now want to move ahead beyond just considering what it meant to what it means. I want to consider this law's lasting theological significance for the church. Here we consider what the law tells us about God, how Christ's law fulfillment influences this law, and what the love principle is behind the law. Deuteronomy 22.5 is the fruit of this truth. Yahweh is ever passionate to preserve and display right order in his world. That's why we have Deuteronomy 22.5. This is the essence of God's righteousness, his passion to preserve and display right order in his world wherein he is supreme over all righteousness. Maintaining gender distinctions is an important part 
of this righteousness, this order. The stress in Genesis 1-2 on the way males and females image God and the Pentateuch's depiction of Yahweh's relationship with Israel as a marriage, it pushes the reader to view one's biological sex and gender identity and expression as first and foremost about God. The rest of the Old Testament highlights this parabolic purpose of sex and gender distinctions in books like Hosea, chapters 1 through 3, where the prophet's own life was a parable of the reality of God and his community. And then the same vision is carried on into the New Testament, most clearly where Paul portrays the church as Christ's bride, Ephesians 5. To the level that we flatten the inborn distinctions between maleness and femaleness, we flatten the distinctions between the sovereign Savior and the saved, between the exalted and the needy, between the blameless one and the sinner. I don't want to be among those who flatten such things. We take glory away from God and His Christ when we act as though distinctions between men and women are non-existent. And we hurt the entire community. We are hurting all those around us, both in the way that we fail to point them to gospel righteousness and in the way we open them up for God's just wrath. So how does Christ's law fulfillment impact our understanding of Deuteronomy 22.5? We can first say that Christ and his followers continued to distinguish men from women. They didn't have a gender-inclusive, all genders equal, no distinction approach. No, there was distinctions. Indeed, Jesus perfectly exemplified maleness in the way that he deeply respected femaleness, standing as the ultimate provider and protector and leader in servant-hearted love. Consider Jesus, the remarkable pattern. He respected his mother. He had female disciples. He sought to protect women from male abuses. He portrayed women as models of faith. He extended care and healing to seemingly insignificant female sufferers. He received anointing from women. He disclosed himself first to women after his resurrection. Jesus is the ultimate man. Christ is the substance to which all biblical symbols point. But unlike some pictures, like the temple and clean and unclean laws, which actually came to an end in Jesus' first coming, the distinction between males and females will continue at least to the consummation. And even then, while earthly marriage will apparently be no more, the picture being overcome by the reality There is no reason in my mind to think that the distinction between men and women, heads and helpers within the community of faith will actually alter in the new heavens and new earth. Male and femaleness will most likely provide an eternal reminder of God's right order in reality, wherein he is supreme over all. Now along with this, New Covenant teaching maintains role distinctions between men and women, most explicitly in its instructions to husbands and wives, texts like Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, and then to local churches regarding their corporate worship, teaching, and leadership, 1 Corinthians 11, 14, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1. 
It also calls for men to live as men, women to live as women, and for the young to be trained to live out the gender role related to their God-given sex, Titus 2, 2 through 6. Paul exhorted Timothy to respect and encourage older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. All of this assumes that we can rightly identify those who are men and those who are women. Paul asserted that every Old Testament commandment is summarized in the call to love our neighbor, Romans 13, 8 and 10. Jesus, too, said that whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. Indeed, this is the law and the prophets. With every law in the Old Testament, then, we should be able to actually boil it down into a principle of love. In Deuteronomy 22.5, loving others in God means this, that people will maintain a gender identity that aligns with their biological sex and will express this gender in a way that never leads to gender confusion in the eyes of others. Let me restate that. In Deuteronomy 22.5, loving others in God means that people will maintain a gender identity that aligns with their biological sex and will express this gender in a way that never leads to gender confusion in the eyes of others. We should always be able to distinguish boys from boys and girls from girls. When our biological sex aligns with our gender identity and our gender expression, then we express love for God and we express love for our neighbor. Conclusion. Deuteronomy 22.5 was not originally given to the church, but it contains a portrait of God and a principle of love that can guide the church today when we read it in light of the finished work of Christ. In Jesus, we have a perfect pattern for maleness in relation to femaleness. But not only this, Not just a pattern, but in Jesus we are supplied unmatched power for our pursuit of rightly ordered living. The power comes through the pardon that Jesus secured at the cross. The power comes from the promises that he purchased at the cross. Past grace, future grace, the gender identity crisis can only be faced by the church within this context. We've already noted that God's passion for right order has not changed in the new covenant, for it is part of his very being. With this, the physical and role distinctions between men and women, they don't appear to have changed this side of the cross. God's righteousness is unswerving, and we must be ever concerned to display the magnificence of Christ's love for his church in every situation of life. Now, this affirmed Deuteronomy 22.5 becomes instructive for the church in helping us to recognize the appropriate path for gender expression and the sinfulness of gender confusion, which includes cross-dressing and transgender practice. So as I conclude this sermon, what I want to do is I want to give some practical steps for the church, for you, for you. I want to give practical steps for how we as the believing community, trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins and looking to him as our supreme sovereign and savior and satisfier, how we as a people can confront the transgender storm. But I also want to mix into these words, words of hope words of hope for those who are struggling with transgender identity, 
and also words of hope to the victims of another's gender identity crisis. Church, point one, grieve. Grieve. Grieve deeply over the brokenness of our culture, the debased makeup of all who sin against nature by supporting transgender identity and transgender expression. Grieve in your soul. Let it reach down deep. Let it move you to weep and cry and tears to come to your eyes because it is, it is heinous. The glory of God is at stake and our kids are having to face this mess. You're having to face this mess. In Ezekiel 9, before sending in executioners to destroy all Jerusalem who failed to look upon and savor the beauty of the Lord, God declared to a messenger, you go, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Ezekiel 9.4. Only those who grieve over sin will be saved. Church, grieve deeply over the way so many in our country are profaning the very nature of God by confusing maleness and femaleness through transgender. Number two, pray. Pray. Don't be anxious, but pray to our sovereign God that he will soon make all things right and overcome all these abominations to his holiness. Pray that God will awaken sleepers and open blind eyes. Pray that God will preserve his church even as the sheep are increasingly distinguished from the goats. Pray for persevering grace to maintain our trust in his bigness, his faithfulness, his care, even in the wake of rising tribulation. Pray that we will not fear those who can kill the body but not the soul but rather may we be those pray that we will be those who fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell fear him pray church pray number three remember remember that the creation was subjected to futility in hope in hope and remember that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Remember that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God and that as God's children we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Remember, as you confront those with broken perspectives on gender. Remember that you yourselves were once separated from Christ, but God saved you by grace through faith. Remember also that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So don't hesitate to share good news. Number four, be mindful and care. Be mindful of those broken in this transgender identity crisis and care deeply for both the violators and the violated. One self-identity will forever be maligned so long as we are looking at ourselves in the mirror and not turning to look into the face of Jesus. We need to help those struggling with transgender identity to find a new identity in Christ. We need to help those who've been hurt by others to help them find the healing and the relief that only Jesus can bring. He alone is the Savior. He alone 
is the healer. Now, if any of you today are struggling with transgender identity, I exhort you to realize your sin and repent before the living God. This is an, a direct affront against God's nature. But not only this, know something. Know that the gospel of Jesus is the power of God for your salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What I'm, what I'm saying is that the gospel is power because in it we encounter the very one who is working right order. And if you're struggling to be aligned with right order in the gospel, that's where the power is found. Righteousness is manifest through the gospel. It's found in nowhere else. The gospel contains all you need to find your personal identity realigned with God's definition of right order. In your present state, there is much grief. But in the face of Jesus, there is relief. Relief from condemnation. Relief from the fear of man. Relief from inability in accordance with your biological sex. God can, can work it all out. The gospel is power because through the cross, God becomes 100% for us in Jesus. Filling our pursuit of rightly ordered living with all authority in heaven and on earth. He can make you a new creation. He can give you new, right standing and a new direction in life that properly displays his greatness to the world. God can do it. The gospel is power. Not only because the cross secures past pardon and transformed desires, but also because at the cross... What is purchased is future promises, promises that help motivate us in our pursuit of right living. The promise that the pure in heart will see God. The pure in heart will see God. And the heart is the wellspring of life. The pure in heart can see God. Let that transform you and motivate you like no other desire can. God is big enough to help you in your transgender crisis. Now, if today you find yourself the victim of another's transgender identity crisis, know that Jesus heals. Know that Jesus helps. He can make you feel clean again. He can set you on a new course that moves through healing to growth and joy. He can give you a new sense of purpose. He can restructure a proper vision of what it means to be male and what it means to be female. And he can grant you blood-bought wisdom for moving ahead. Your life doesn't have to remain broken. Come to Jesus and be saved from the torment of your past. So church, I exhort you, be mindful of the broken and care. Number five, 
nurture God-honoring views of maleness and femaleness. As Christians, we need to be extremely intentional to build a deep-seated God esteem into ourselves and into those who are around us. I'm not talking self-esteem. I said God esteem. That's what needs to be our principal focus. We need to train our kids that everything we do should be for the glory of God. The transgender crisis, I believe, would be overcome if people became more passionate about God's authentic right to our surrender and less passionate about an individual's self-claim rights to personal autonomy. This world is not about you and me. It's about him. As believers, we should be among those who celebrate men being masculine, women being feminine, both in the way that we act and in the way that we dress. Because God has ordained males to take on the primary role of provision and protection, I encourage my sons to be risk-takers, to do dirty work, to be defenders and hunters and builders. And... Because God has ordained females to help rule and serve, I rejoice if one of my daughters also wants to engage in any of these activities. But I also encourage my girls to nurture inward godliness, to master homemaking, and to ever carry themselves as women who are increasingly fearing the Lord. With this, I want to encourage my children, I want to encourage my congregants to ever carry themselves so that there is never any question as to whether their gender identity or gender expression stands in distinction from their biological sex as male and as female. Deuteronomy 22.5 wants us to know that things like haircuts, dress, communication patterns and interests matter when it comes to the glory of God. Now we must be balanced here. Many in the church have not been balanced here. At least right now, November 2015, it could change next week. But right now, when you go into a clothing store, there is still a men's section and a women's section. There are certain styles that are more masculine and other styles that are more feminine. But note this, not all styles are gender-specific. Keep that in mind. For example, though it wasn't always this case, now ladies can wear slacks. Ladies can have collars. Ladies can even, if you go to Olive Garden, wear ties. And no one questions their femaleness. Guys, too, could have an earring or long hair, and none question that's a man. What's at stake in Moses' law was gender identity and gender expression and gender confusion. And it's from this perspective that we need to be thinking about dress. Pray with me. Father, we say together, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, 
give glory. There is an onslaught of demonic forces shaping idols of the heart all over our country. You are greater. We pray that you would let us shine as lights, not anxious, but even doing what we're doing now, praying to you, you who are greater, you who are more beautiful, you who actually create things the way you do because it fits best. It's not chaotic, it's right, and it works. Help us, Father. Embrace right order in your world. May it impact our dress. May it impact our speech. May it impact our preferences. Give us wisdom for mediating this very difficult storm. But we praise you today, together, that in Christ you have already overcome. To his glory we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.